0: Would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If you don't happen to have a Bible this morning, it is always useful to have one open and in front of you as we study God's Word together. So I'd invite you to grab one of the Bibles that should be in a chair back nearby you and you'll find this morning's text on page 882. If you haven't been with us for very long here at Redeemer, since November of 2017, we have been studying Luke's gospel. And if you've been with us since November of 2017, you may find it hard to believe that we are only about six weeks away from being done with the gospel of Luke. If God is kind to us and the Lord tarries after this week, there should only be six more sermons in this narrative of the story of the life of Jesus. And for the last few weeks, we've been occupied with what Jesus was doing primarily what He was saying on Thursday night of Passion Week. And what we see this morning in our text is Jesus leaving the warmth and the comfort of the upper room with His disciples to go one last time up in the darkness to the Mount of Olives to a scene full of grief and agony unlike any other that you will find recorded about the life of our Lord. So kids, what you want to think about this morning is I dare say that this text Outside of Jesus' death and resurrection is the most moving and magnificent truth of our Lord that you can find in all of the Bible. So you want to hear, maybe uniquely, with extra earnestness this morning. So our text is verse 39 through 53 of Luke 22. Now let me get us going by reading it. Then I'll pray for God's blessing on our study and we will begin. So hear now. For God is speaking to you through his Son. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, Remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours, be done. And there appeared to Him an angel from heaven strengthening Him. And being in agony, He prayed more earnestly, and His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when He rose from prayer, He came to His disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise. And pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we do bow before you now, wanting the Spirit to move among us in power that we might know the true glory that we see in the agony of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to renew our faith in Him this morning, to revel the flesh in the glory of His humanity, that He came to die for sinners, that He bore Your wrath in our place. So help us, we pray, to have minds that are free from distraction, hearts that are free from inattention, that we might listen to You, that we might hear what Jesus would have us to hear this morning. Help me to preach as Your Word says I must. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Dwight Eisenhower was on the campaign trail to become president in 1952, and one of the stops along the way in that campaign journey was at a luncheon for World War II veterans. And somewhere along the way at that afternoon meal, he began to reminisce about the orders that he had to declare that would give rise and give initiative to the D-Day attack in Normandy. And as he began to have this memory of all the misery Uh, that ensued, this regal general who was very much able to keep his emotions in check suddenly began to weep in the presence of all these other soldiers. And because of his grief and his agony and his sorrow, he took a handkerchief out of his pocket and covered his face. And there's a, a rather famous picture of him there in the midst of his agony, not wanting to be seen. And I tell you that because we come to a text this morning that is all about agony. It is all about grief. And some of you know the depth of anguish and sorrow and misery that suffering can bring into your life. So much so that it's like this spiritual weight that causes you to bow your head, to look down, so heavy it is that you feel as though you're never going to be able to look up again. And we come to a text where we find Jesus bowed down low. So low, in fact, it's quite shocking what He is doing. And there's a sense in which, maybe kids, if you've ever seen a person cry before, uh, you naturally, it seems like, begin to look away because you don't want to see the grief and agony. But when we see the sorrow of our Savior, it's a sorrow that we must look at together this morning. For we must see the full depth of His love for us. I think Charles Spurgeon, that great English preacher from the 1800s, captured it so well when he said of our text, Here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. But of course, language we must use, must try to explain the unexplainable, and the depths of our Savior's agony. And we can begin to try to explain it by just summarizing the essential point of this passage by saying, we want to see the Son's submission to His Father's will for your salvation. That sinners might be saved from the penalty that their sin deserves, the Son had to submit to His Father's will. And we want to discover what that submission looks like. We want to discover even what the Father's will was. So this is a text for all of us this morning. We, of course, enter this room as sinful people. But it's also a text for maybe uniquely where you stand in your life in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're in here this morning and you feel like you're praying consistently unto the Lord, yet He keeps saying no. Or maybe you're in here this morning and you want to know how it is that you can actually stand against the schemes of Satan. Satan. Students, maybe you're in here this morning and you hear churches and Christians say that prayer is very important and you wonder, really, is it that important? Or maybe you are in the midst of a season of suffering and you think nobody in the church, none of your friends or family, could possibly understand what you are going through. Could the Savior sympathize with my weakness in this moment? This is a text for... All of us today, but we need to see from the outset that this text isn't primarily about Jesus giving us an example that he set. Even though there are, I think, innumerable lessons that we need to learn from this passage about his example. It's more about us seeing the experience of his sorrow. Because what I hope we'll see by the end this morning is how the sorrow of Jesus Christ in this garden called Gethsemane reveals our triune God's love for sinners like nothing else in all the Bible. Truth that we will sing later this morning. For me it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will but thine. He had no sweat for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Tears not for his grief. Anguish of blood for us. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. So we've seen, if you've been with us in recent weeks, all the way back to chapter 19, we've been looking at this Passion Week that we call of Jesus Christ. The seven days between His triumphal entry and His resurrection. We've seen everything that he was doing, everything that he was saying. Last week we left off with his final directions, his final instructions to all the disciples on the Thursday night of Passion Week. He's there in this comfortable upper room with his chosen followers. We saw that he was reminding them again that true greatness is found in humble service. He predicted what we'll see in just a few weeks' time, Peter betraying Jesus three times, And even if you glance up, he said in verse 37 of chapter 22 that something must be fulfilled. He must be numbered among the transgressors. And as we move into our text this morning, we find out exactly the terrifying horror that that means for Jesus, to be counted among the transgressors. So our text comes in two parts. First, we want to see the agony of Jesus. Look again at verse 39. Jesus came and came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So if you want to think about geography in Jerusalem, think of the Mount of Olives being on the east side of the city, outside these fortified city walls. It rises some 2,700 feet into the air. And it's striking and quite important that Luke tells us he went out as was his custom. Do you want to know why Judas knew exactly where to find Jesus in just a few moments' time? This is where he often was. We know from earlier on in this chapter that the Mount of Olives was his chosen campground for Passion Week. It's going to be quite easy for Judas to locate where Jesus was there in the dark secret of that night. But quite strikingly as well, it's reminding us that Jesus isn't going up the Mount of Olives for this last time as some sort of fleeing of his fate. No, he's going willingly. He's going voluntarily. He's going knowing what is about ready to come, which is betrayal and arrest. This is a Savior who will suffer in the place of sinners, not because He was forced to do it, but because He desired to do it. And the first thing we need to see in this first part of the text is the Savior's location. Look at verse 40. And when He came to the place. You could go home later today. It would be a good Lord's Day afternoon activity and compare... Matthew, Mark, and Luke on what they tell us about Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Luke is quite restrained. He's quite quick. He's quite short. You see, he doesn't even tell us that this garden is named Gethsemane. He doesn't even tell us as John 18 does, that it is in fact a garden. And Gethsemane was basically a Hebrew way of saying olives pressed or olives crushed. And it was about 230 feet in the air outside of Jerusalem. It's about 300 feet away from an east gate into the temple that was called the sheep's gate. And into that gate every year during Passover would come the thousands upon thousands of sheep that were going to be slaughtered for the Passover feast. So you begin to see in this location, in this situation and setting of our Savior, uh, what is about ready to happen to Him. He's going to be crushed as a lamb. In the place of sinners, and even the very name, Gethsemane, where he loved to pray, begins to communicate that to us. But see what his direction is to his disciples in verse 40. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us that what Jesus actually did when he came into the garden, he set eight disciples aside at the entrance to the garden, and he went further in with his closest three, Peter, James, and John. It was to these three that he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And evidently, if we kind of piece the Gospels together, it seems like they were going to be tempted to fall asleep. And why that was going to be a problem is because it seems like Jesus has left them there to be this kind of forewarning, this kind of alarm of Judas when he arrives into the garden to betray him. And the only way that they're going to be able to stay awake, the only way that they're only going to be able to watch is if they pray that they may not fall into temptation. So these very men, if you just look back up to what we saw last week in verse 38, they were wanting to try to fight the Lord's battle with man's weapons. Now God's battle rages in this garden, and the only weapon that they ought to use, Jesus says, is the greatest one, which is prayer. If you live in prayer, the Bible says you will not live in temptation. If you strive in prayer, you will not succumb to the snares of Satan. So kids, I wonder if this week you've been tempted to sin. Surely you have. Did you fight against the devil? If so, how did you fight against the devil? What you need to know is that Jesus says the ordinary way we fight as Christians is with the sword of the Spirit oiled and sharpened through prayer. If a Christian church is to grow in holiness and maturity in Christ, resisting the devil's schemes, it must be a church preeminently known as praying together. So this is the Savior's direction. And you'll notice now the Savior's submission. Look at verse 41. He withdrew from them, that's Peter, James, and John, about a stone's throw. Some of you are former baseball players, football players, and I wonder how far you can throw a stone. Of course, it depends on the size of the stone, the weight of the stone. And let's just say for the sake of, I think, what Luke is after here, that we've got a big enough stone and a heavy enough stone that I can throw it from this pulpit to the back of the room. That's about how far Jesus would have walked away from the disciples. What Luke seems to be communicating is that he was still in sight, but he was out of sound. They could see him, but they couldn't necessarily hear what he was praying to the Lord, but don't rush by what ends in verse 41. He knelt down and prayed. It's striking because no one prayed like this at this time in the Jewish culture. A devout Jew, when you were praying, you would stand up. You would look up and you would raise your arms up. But Jesus does the exact opposite. Mark's language in Mark chapter 14 kind of communicates this earnestness that he falls down with his face to the ground. So heavy is this burden that lays upon his soul. And notice what he prays, of course, in verse 42. Father... If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Sometime during the Civil War, a poet named Julia Ward Howe visited Union troops in Washington, D.C. with her pastor. And not long after they arrived into the camp, the Confederate forces attacked this camp where the Union soldiers were. And she was mightily impressed with the defense these Union troops offered uh, to their campground. And so she began to pin lyrics that essentially were married to a melody that became one of the most famous battle anthems in our nation's history. Many of you know it, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, this chorus that goes on, glory, glory, hallelujah, three times. Our Lord is marching on. But maybe you've noticed, if you know the song, how the first verse is altogether threatening. Mine eyes have seen... The glory of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. It's actually a biblical text taken right from Jeremiah chapter twenty-five, verse thirty, which says this the Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice, he will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes. And you say, Jordan, what does that have to do with Gethsemane? Well, the context of Jeremiah 25, is this. Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make the nations to whom I send you drink it. It's almost a direct echo of what happened years before in Isaiah's ministry. Isaiah 51, verse 17 says, Wake yourself, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath and have drunk to the dregs the cup of staggering. So students, what is this cup that Jesus doesn't want? What is this goblet that Jesus says, Take it away. It is the cup of God's wrath for the trillions and trillions and trillions of sins for the billions of His elect people. A cup foaming in fury, bottomless in horror, endless in anger. And He says, Take it away. But do you notice, he says, if you are willing. I think that's striking. Maybe you come from a Christian tradition that essentially will say to give this caveat at the beginning or end of your prayers. Lord, if you are willing, is just a sign of having small faith. What Jesus really should have prayed here because he knows his father better than anyone else is, Lord, I declare that you must take this cup away from me. I know that you can do it. I know that you're powerful to do it. So do it. But what does he say? If you are willing, take this cup from me. There's submission, isn't there? Of course, even how the prayer ends, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's not the time, is it, to deal with questions maybe you have about how Christ's divine will and human will relate to one another. It's just meant to show us the humility of our Lord in His humanity. That He submits to the Father's perfect, holy will, no matter what it is, even if it says, No, you get the cup. I will not take it. And that is, of course, what He hears. So you don't want to just see the Savior's submission. Now notice in verse 43, the Savior's consolation. And there appeared to Him an angel from heaven, strengthening Him. Maybe you can remember back to the temptation narrative early on in the Gospels when Jesus resists Satan's temptations in the wilderness. And when He finally gets rid of the last temptation, do you remember what comes? Angels ministering to Jesus. Here it is, in a certain way, He's in another wilderness in His heart there in Gethsemane, resisting the temptations of the evil one to let the cup pass Him by. But He's strong. And so the Lord sends an angel to comfort him. The Lord has said, no, it's not time to drink the cup yet, but what you want to see in this moment in Jesus' life, the cup is now in his hands. He has taken it. He's only about 18 hours away from drinking it and drinking it and drinking it till he gets to the bottom and what does he say? It is finished. So an angel is strengthening him. Also notice verse 44. Jesus being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Uh, this verb earnestly it actually kind of pictures this idea of being stretched out. So kids, if you think about trying to stretch a rubber band around something to its breaking point, that, that's what Jesus' emotions in this text are like. That's the, that's the extent of his agony. He's being stretched out so much so that in Mark's gospel it would say he is near to death so great is the sorrow. He was almost killed before Calvary over the suffering of what awaited him in this cup of wrath. So much so, notice how verse 44 ends, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This could have actually happened medically to distress and agony and sorrow. The capillaries in his forehead burst and blood began to mingle with sweat. Or maybe Luke means it more like a simile or a metaphor. So earnest was his praying, so earnest was his agony that it was as though he was sweating blood. Whatever it is, Of course, it's communicating to us something of the emotional experience of our Lord there in Gethsemane. This is a sorrow that was about to kill him. And so he rises up, notice, in verse 45 from his place of prayer, he comes to the disciples and he finds them sleeping for sorrow. In some ways, if you read Matthew and Mark's gospel, because this conversation Jesus gets up and goes to the disciples, it happens three times. So this is this kind of complete cycle showing their inability to not just pray, but their inability thus to resist temptation. It's easy just to say, hey, you know, what terrible followers of Jesus these men were. But Luke helps us know their experience too. Do you see why they're sleeping? Not because they're tired. They know something's wrong. Sorrow has put them to sleep. And some of you know what that's like, don't you? Going through grief and agony and anguish to such a degree, you just don't want to wake up. You can't. Even wake up. So what does Jesus say? Look at verse 46. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's certainly possible, isn't it, that you might be in here today sleeping spiritually. Now what Jesus means to say to you in this text is, why are you sleeping? Rise up and pray. Or maybe if you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, He'll say for the first time, Awake. Come alive. Why are you dead asleep? Do you not see what I have done for sinners like you? This is the agony of Jesus. Now notice the treachery of Judas in verse 47 through 53. Notice it briefly. You see in verse 47, Jesus is speaking to Peter, John, and James. And Judas comes, one of the twelve. He draws near to Jesus to kiss Him. But what does Jesus say in verse 48? Judas Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You know, these are these passages in the Gospel that don't you want to know the tone of what he said? Was he angry at Judas in righteousness? Judas, you betray me with a kiss? Was it disappointment Judas? You betray me with a kiss? This sign of loyalty, now ultimate disloyalty. Or is it a sign of, this is the last chance, Judas, to repent? You betray me with a kiss? What did he say? How did he say it? Nobody knows. But we know what the disciples were trying to do. Again, man's weapons are in their hands, so they're trying to fight God's battle with man's swords. So we know from John 18, Peter picks up his sword. He hacks off this man named Malchus' right ear. He's a servant to the high priest. Jesus, of course, isn't impressed with Peter's devotion. Look at verse 51. Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And he's also not impressed, is he, with the crowds that come to him secretly and quietly in the night. Look at verse 52 through 53. Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me, but this is your hour, the power of darkness." You know, students, what you need to know is that these leaders, if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, they're trying to basically find a way where they can accuse Jesus of being a political insurrectionist, this kind of revolutionary figure in Rome. They could hand him over to Rome because only the Roman Empire could kill him. Only they had the authority of the sword. So it's essentially what he's saying, are you treating me like a robber? Really? I'm a political insurrectionist? I've been teaching in the temple every single day. Really? Really? I'm an insurrectionist. If so, why didn't you come and arrest me in the plain sight of all while I was teaching in the temple day by day? He's meaning in, in that moment to signal to us and to them his innocence, isn't he? He hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything to deserve what is getting ready to fall on him. But what does he do? Nothing. And that's the point, isn't it? With complete innocence and willingness, he goes... To what we'll soon see is nothing less than a sham, false trial that does indeed lead to his death. Even at the end of our text, we see the son's submission to his father's will. This must happen, that he would be numbered among the transgressors. We have lots of little kids in our home, as many of you know, and so especially if you're a young parent, you may remember these days, if you're an older parent, there rarely seems to be a day go by where something is going on with one of the children and maybe it's correction or instruction. Uh, You say, look at me. And then they don't look at you. And you say, look at me. And they still don't look at you. And so you grab them by the face. Look at me. Because the point is, What I'm communicating with words isn't enough. You need to see what's written on my face. Look at me. You know what the Lord is doing with this text? Look at my son. He's taking you with his hands of love. Look at my son. Do you see what he has done? And that we might see what he has done. Why the agony of Jesus Christ is indeed the glory of Gethsemane. I want to point out just four things as we begin to close. Why must you look at Jesus in Gethsemane? First, it shows the horrors of sin. You must see Jesus staring into that foaming cup of fury, wanting it to pass by to recognize that what? Sin has a penalty, and it is horrifying. Kids, you don't want to be tempted into the world's way of understanding disobedience to the Lord, as it's no big deal. Everyone does it. Everyone says it. Everyone else thinks it. Jesus says, no. This is what it deserves. Something so terrifying and furious that I don't even want to touch it. I don't even want to feel it. I don't even want to drink it. He knows what Revelation 14 is eventually going to say when, of course, He returns. Revelation 14, verse 10 The enemies of God will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the Lamb. That day is coming. And Jesus took it Himself there in Gethsemane. You want to see the horrors of sin. It rebukes our small understandings of sin, doesn't it? But you also want to see, secondly, the holiness of Jesus Christ. He had to say, let this cup pass from me, if he was indeed the holy chosen one of Israel. The very holiness of Jesus Christ means he could not want to touch it. He could not want to see it. He could not want to feel it. Do you want to know that Jesus is holy? Just listen to the prayer, Lord, if you are willing, take this cup from me. For if we said, no, I'll take it, without praying that first, we'd have reason to wonder if He really is holy, if He really is the chosen one of God. It's the horror of sin, the holiness of Christ, and it seems in certain ways like bad news. But you do see the hope of salvation there in Gethsemane. Now look at the end of our text in verse 53. Jesus says, but this is your hour, the power of darkness. You can underline, underscore this idea, your hour. This is your time. It's going to be three days that the forces of darkness get to jump on the grave of Jesus Christ, thinking that they've won. You get your hour. You get your time. But I will have the triumph. Three days from now, the kingdom will now begin to come into the world because of what I have done and my Father's pleasure in my offering by bringing me back to life. There's hope. There's a glimmer, glistening ray of hope Breaking through that night there at Gethsemane. And we dare not rush by too quick remembering that this indeed is a garden, John 18 tells us. Significant, isn't it? Because it was a garden so many years before that the first Adam plunged the world into the darkness of sin. And it's at another garden so many years later that the second Adam begins to now fully and finally undo what the first Adam did. It's in the Garden of Eden that Adam listened to Satan. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus listened to His Father. It's in Eden that Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, Jesus was sorrowful. In Eden, Adam caved. In Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. In Eden, Adam said, I want to hide from the Lord in my shame. In Gethsemane, Jesus stood up and said, Here I am. I am He, that you might know the hope of salvation. And the fourth and final thing that you do want to see from this text is the call that it does make, and maybe we can just say it in this way, it's the hour of decision. Here's what I mean by that. You might have recently gone to a friend's house, family member's house, and they're quite good at hospitality, and so they asked you a question right after you came in. That question may have been, hey, do you want anything to drink? Uh, What you need to know, the Bible tells us, is there is a day coming when Jesus will give you something to drink. But He won't ask you what you want. He will give you what you should receive. But now is the hour, the New Testament says, the day, the time of salvation. Now is the time to choose Jesus Christ. For what, of course, did He do? He drank the cup of wrath so that we might drink the cup of salvation. And if you want to understand exactly how wonderful it is that we get that cup, just consider the contrast, the inverse to the cup that Jesus got. Meditate on it even this week with a good Christian friend. Jesus got the cup of bottomless horrors of God's wrath and said, let it pass from me so that you get to get what? The cup of bottomless, endless joys forgiveness, new life, salvation, conversion, justification, you get the endless blessings of Jesus Christ that know no end, that cannot begin to be explained this morning in a short little sermon. So what did He do in His submission to the Father's will? He took the cup of wrath that by turning from your sin, trusting in Him, you could get the cup of salvation. So this is the decision, isn't it, that faces all of us this morning most primarily. Which cup? Will he give you at the last day? Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that the suffering and sorrow of your son would mean much more to us than it often does. We confess that we have small thoughts of Jesus. We confess that we so often think of anything but our Savior's love for us. But help us, we pray, even as we come to this wonderful text, one of the summits of Scripture, that we see afresh our Savior's love for us. That it is marvelous, that it is wonderful, that He died in our place, that He took the cup, that we might know salvation. So help us, we pray, to respond in this hour to You rightly, with repentance and faith. And we do pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.